many of you have reached your saturation level and you can't take any more Ruth? a girl. Okay. I love it. How many of you are hungry to hear some more? Okay. Let's get on that, shall we? We are just going to jump in right where we left off last week. We have Naomi wrestling with the possibilities. Would Boaz be willing to be the kinsman redeemer, the go well for for Ruth, is it possible that he would consider such a thing? And then Ruth is going to chime in with a little more intelligence that will give Naomi further hope. So let's back it up just a bit and read a couple of the verses that we closed with last week uh, in verse 20. It says, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, when she sees this vast abundance of provision that she has come home with on the first day of gleaning, Naomi says, may he be blessed of the Lord who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, the man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. That means the Goel. Then verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabitess, lest we forget where she comes from. Furthermore, he said to me, you should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And I adore Naomi, y'all. She is a smart old girl. Uh, And she is well able to read between the lines here. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. First, she understands that Boaz has looked with great favor upon Ruth. That's an excellent sign if they're going to pursue him for a husband. And then in verse 21, she says, for all my harvest. And again, that refers to the ensuing wheat harvest. That is roughly from Passover to Pentecost, about a seven-week period. And then second, we must remember that Ruth is a young woman with a sterling reputation. Anybody who saw her working in the field, all of the eligible men of Bethlehem might have seen this hard working girl and y'all, she eats like a bird. That's a real sweet package if you're looking for a wife. So she has this sterling reputation and it's growing day by day. She is becoming known to everyone as a woman of excellence. And all of these things are going to add up to quite a catch by the time we get to the end of this story. And it would be perfectly normal for Ruth to be interested in marrying again. And again, perfectly normal for her to look around her at the available bachelors in Bethlehem for possible candidates. Uh, Generally, we think that she would be looking for someone in her same age group. And remember, one of the rabbis wrote that at this time, Boaz is roughly 80, and she is in the 40-year-old time frame. I don't know if that's absolutely true. Uh, It was like from the early 1800s that I found that information. So we'll find out when we get to heaven. But we cannot fault her too greatly for this one and only breach of conduct recorded in the book. Now, we know we all like sheep have fallen 
have gone astray. Uh, all of us have done something wrong at some point or another. So even these sterling characters whose stories we read in the Bible, men like Joseph and Daniel and women like Ruth, they're still sinners and they still need a savior. This happens to be the one and only minor thing that's recorded of Ruth that, from which we can learn. If you look back at Ruth chapter two, verse eight, it's the conversation between Boaz and Ruth. And Boaz invites Ruth to stay by his maids. Do you see that? However, when Ruth goes home and tells Naomi all that transpired, she tells her mother-in-law that she was invited to stay close to my servants. Servants is in the masculine. So she is telling Naomi, Boaz said I could come every day for the next seven weeks and stay by the men. And Naomi's like, uh-uh-uh. No, she didn't. No, he didn't. And bless her heart. It's encouraging. Ruth is human after all. So you don't have to put her up on some lofty pedestal and think I can never get there. It's just the Bible edits out a lot of that. Aren't you glad that the Lord has an edit button for you? Delete, delete, delete. I love it. The reality of this time, though, is that it is a period in which there is extreme moral decay. And truly, five times in chapter two, Ruth's personal safety is mentioned. Boaz commands his workers, the men, not to touch her. He also warns Ruth not to go into another field because he can't protect her beyond his own borders. Uh, then Naomi cautions her here in verse 22, so that others do not fall on you in another field. You don't have to use much imagination to understand what they're talking about. She is a Moabitess. Her safety and her purity are in jeopardy. And verse to her credit, look at this in verse 23. She immediately acquiesces and obeys cheerfully. Would that we would obey that quickly and with this much cheerfulness and immediacy. Verse 23, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The reward for her obedience will be her physical safety. And in that, we are given additional insight into the power of Boaz in the community. He is a mighty man of wealth, all that that implies, and he is well-respected in Bethlehem. He speaks and people listen. When he commands something, he is taken seriously. And we're going to see some evidence of that as we continue to go further in the study. Now, to recap something I mentioned from last week's study regarding similitudes or types or models, whatever word you want to use that makes it uh, clear in your head, uh, Boaz stands for us as a type, a model of Jesus Christ. And Naomi is, excuse me, Ruth is a type of the church, the Gentile bride. Naomi is a type of Israel, the keeper and the teacher of the law. 
Now, I never want to leave it like that and have you think that's all this book is because these are real people living in real circumstances, doing real things. We can just read it and apply all this spiritual application to it and forget that these are real people. And that's very important. It's just that the Lord has used their story, their real story to teach us a greater, deeper truth. And he's probably doing the same thing in your life. The people that are watching you live and move and have your being see the story that is written. How are you conveying Jesus Christ in the midst of your own story to this lost and dying world? That's an important thing to consider. You are real. You are truly living and moving and breathing and suffering and rejoicing and all of the shades in between. And the world is watching to see if the things you profess to be true about Jesus Christ are indeed true. So their story is a testimony to us of greater, deeper things. And your story is real and greater and deeper to those who are watching. Be careful how you proceed. The Gentile bride we see here in this type learns everything about the law from Israel. And Israel learns about grace and experiences redemption through the Gentile bride. As a type of the bride of Christ, she immediately falls on her face before her future bridegroom. And for many of us, when you first come to Christ, that's the reaction, the natural reaction that you have. Some people don't have a reaction like this. It's legit either way. But there is a moment for most of us in our walk with Christ, if it's the very first moment or sometime down the road, where we realize how we have earned this unmerited favor and it just knocks us off our feet. And that's what we see uh, Ruth experiencing. And of course, at the very first meeting with with Boaz, she does not know he is going to be her redeemer, her bridegroom. Her understanding is limited. But as she's working in the fields every day over the course of those seven weeks, she is learning more and more about the mighty man of wealth, the Lord of the harvest. And I think that Boaz probably fell in love with Bruce, with Ruth. I'm having a problem today with the teeth, sorry. With Ruth, the very first minute that he saw her, that it was an honorable, holy kind of love, that he admired, respected, and loved her from the very moment he saw her. When did your bridegroom first see you? Before the foundation of the world. And he has been in love with you madly and deeply from that day to this. It's such a sweet thing sometimes to just meditate on the everlasting love of God. Now, Naomi and Ruth have this ample provision. And it's going to grow day by day as Ruth continues to go and glean in the fields. But when the harvests are done and their provisions begin to deplete, what will they do? They are going to be uh, at the mercy of the kindness of the citizens of Bethlehem. How fortunate that Naomi is beginning to hatch a plan and launches a plan to ensure their future welfare. Verse one of chapter three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, and I love that the, the, the chapter starts with the word then, implying the harvests are done, seven weeks have gone by, then Naomi launches the plan. Uh, she says to her, my daughter, 
Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Naomi's going to take Ruth to law school. And this sweet Jewish mother is educating her Moabitish daughter-in-law in all the ways and means of Hebrew culture and the law of Moses. And I think for Naomi, the presence and the availability of Boaz came as a complete surprise. When they came back into Bethlehem, she was burdened with sorrow and bitterness. She probably did not lift her head up and look around to take inventory of who was still in town. And she was feeling really sorry for herself. So when she finds out from Ruth on that first day that it's Boaz who has looked with such favor, she is completely amazed that he's in the village and still available. Maybe she thought he'd married long ago. Maybe she thought he had died in one of the many wars that they, her countrymen had been fighting during the time of the judges. Whatever the case is, her startled aspect turns into cheerful, grateful joy. And she launches this plan, as I said, arranging everything. So what's happening here is that when the Lord has visited, visited his people and they are bringing in the harvest, it's a sign of the great pleasure of God. And it's a huge celebratory time for the citizenry. And so they are bringing in these crops. It's abundant. They are blessed of the Lord and they are rejoicing. And so this harvest winnowing threshing scene is one of great celebration. It is a party in the sweetest, best sense of the word. So what happened is that you would have this threshing floor area and for communities like this, it was sort of a community property and you would take turns. There would be an organized schedule for each person who had a, a, a harvest to winnow. And so Naomi has been very diligent. She went on the community Facebook page and she found out when Boaz was scheduled, what his time slot was. And she's got this whole thing figured out and she's going to give specific instructions and Ruth is going to follow them to the letter. First of all, Naomi gives her some great advice. Take a bath. Always good advice when you're pursuing a husband just so you have that in mind. So take a bath, put on some sweet smelling perfume and your best clothes. And then Ruth, you get on up to the threshing floor and you uncover his feet and you lay down at his feet. Okay, now y'all, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the reason I hated the book of Ruth when I read it, when I was 20 years old-ish. I'm telling you, since then, the Lord has granted me repentance and I have cheerfully acquiesced. And I now find this one of the most beautiful scenes in all of scripture. But I thought back in the day, you have got to be kidding me. It seemed to me the most demeaning, degrading, indecent, almost lewd behavior to ask this vulnerable young woman to go in the dead of night and grovel at some old man's feet? You have got to be kidding me. So I closed the book and said, well, that's enough of that. And I put it on a shelf for quite a bit of time. And then the Lord began to slowly, slowly draw me back and woo me to himself. And as I say, I have repented and I love this picture now. It is so precious to me. Verses three and four excuse me, two through four. 
This is Naomi speaking. Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? So there you have it. For seven weeks, Ruth has been hanging with the girls in the field, okay? With whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the men until he has finished eating and drinking. That's just plain old wisdom, y'all. Never approach a man when he's hungry if you have something important to talk about, okay? Make, that's just wise, okay, in any age. So verse four, it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies down and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. So the law of the lever at marriage, if you remember, states that the childless widow must ask the near relative of her dead husband to be her redeemer, to be her goel. It does not matter how much Boaz loves Ruth. He can do nothing to redeem her until she asks. That is another brilliant similitude. It's a beautiful model of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. All that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden, Jesus Christ redeemed on the cross at Calvary. But sadly, just like Israel of old, too often we would not. He is willing and able to do the work of redemption for anyone who will ask, but he will not force his love on anyone. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And I bless the Lord for his pursuing love but I do recognize that he could not and he would not violate my free, unwilling heart. I thank God that Jesus woos each one of us and he waits for us and he continuously draws us to himself. This is another similitude. We cannot meet our bridegroom in our old Garments, which I have sometimes heard called filthy rags. Before Ruth goes to meet her bridegroom, she lays aside her widow's garments. That's a symbol of death, of mourning, of what lie behind. And she will exchange those garments of death for garments of joy. We, when we are saved by Jesus Christ, are given his robe of righteousness to wear. And when we come before our Father in heaven now, he sees us wrapped in that robe of righteousness, no longer dressed in our former things. She also takes a bath. As the bride of Christ, we are instructed to renew our minds every single day. Paul calls it the washing by the water of the word. And we are continually, by that washing of the water of the word, continuously sanctified and cleansed throughout our Christian walk. She anoints herself with a beautiful fragrance. 
And having been cleansed from all sin, we are anointed with the beautiful fragrance of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27 for your notes speak of this. We have an anointing, says John, the Holy One who abides in us to teach us all things. And I love what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. And I will read this for you, but for your notes, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Look at all the verbs involved in what God has done for you. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is who you are as the bride of Christ. You are established, anointed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's given that to you as a pledge. These are tokens that the bride has received from the bridegroom in anticipation of that great and glorious day when we are taken to the Father's house to be with our beloved bridegroom. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians, but now in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are the fragrance of Christ in God. When God looks at you, not only does he see you wrapped in the robe of righteousness, but he smells that beautiful fragrance of holy anointing that is upon you as a bride of Christ. And I think as Ruth prepares to meet her Goel, she embodies what the psalmist King David wrote in Psalm 20, verse six. Now I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Here is this destitute Moabite. She is going to lay herself down at the feet of her, hopefully, uh, redeemer and ask him to cover her with his skirt. She is a vivid picture of the Gentile bride preparing to meet her bridegroom. This is you, y'all. Have you grasp that? This is you. And every bit of this is yea and amen as far as God is concerned. It is the truth about your condition in Christ sitting in that chair right there right now. God is concerned about you in every place you go, in everything you do. And no matter where you go, no matter what you do, he sees you as cleansed and adorned and fragrant. We need to live like we believe it's true and walk in the truth and the power of that. One more little thing about just fragrance, a sweet-smelling savor that ascends to heaven. It's your prayer. It's a picture of your prayer. God holds every one of your prayers so precious that he has them reserved for you in a golden bowl in heaven. It's the prayers of the saints, and we will one day, I believe, offer those back to the Lord as an act of worship. But as you are praying, every day of your life until the Lord calls you home. Here's something to contemplate. How big is your bowl? I do presume we each have one because when he says, I hold all your tears in a bottle, don't you kind of picture that's one per customer? 
So when he says, I have golden bowls, plural, in heaven, which are the prayers of the saints, don't you picture one per customer? So when you get to heaven and he says, hand you a thimble and says, here's your prayer life or the tot tub size, you know, this is up to you. How often do you pray? How big is your bowl? Whatever, it's all a sweet smelling savor, a fragrance that ascends to the Lord. Now, Ruth says to Naomi, all that you say, I will do. And she does. What will Ruth see when she arrives at the threshing floor scene? Well, generally, these threshing floors were prepared up on a hill. The ground was scraped really smooth and hard packed so that you wouldn't get a lot of debris in your wheat or barley or whatever it is you're winnowing. All the rocks and the sticks and the plants have been removed so it's this nice, flat, elevated surface. And then you would throw the harvested stalks down on the ground of this prepared service, and then they would be repeatedly trodden on by either ox or cattle or whatever you have. Or, or uh, maybe you would have flails or sticks and you would just beat the fool out of that grain and it would separate all of the stuff you cannot eat from the good grain. But once you've got all the straw and so forth, removed from the heads of grain, you still have the chaff covered grains. So you would take, and this is why you were up on a hill, you would take these big baskets and you would put hands full of this grain, still with the chaff on it in the baskets. And as you would stand there, you would toss them into the air and then they would fall. And the process of just chapap, chapap, chapap would cause the chaff to begin to wear away. And then as you were doing this, because you're up on a hill and generally there was a prevailing wind, the chaff would be blown away and the heavier wheat would fall into the basket and then you would store it away for later use. Um, All of this is a process that would have been common in Israel and well understood. The useless chaff driven away by the wind and the heavier grain in the basket to be a blessing and a source of sustenance for you. Um, You might use what was left, the straw, et cetera, for fodder for the animals, but there's nothing good about chaff. You just gather it up to burn it. There is not one good thing you can do with chaff. It was a very festive time and families were very much involved. The kids would take turns riding on on the oxen or the cattle, or they would sometimes employ a thing called a sledge that was like a large metal grate and it would be pulled behind the animal and the kids or the women even would ride on it. And it was happy and joyful and singing. And at the end of the day, when the sun finally went down, it would be a great celebration, singing and dancing and feasting and joy overflowing for everyone. Then the families would go home, but the men would stay behind at night to guard the grain from thievery. And they would have these piles now of grain and they would sleep with their heads facing the pile and their feet away from the pile of grain, sort of like spokes in a wheel. And this is where Ruth is instructed to go find Boaz. Verses six and seven. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. 
Now you do need some cultural background in order for this part of the story to make sense. So the hem of a person's garment held much more significance than it does today. Today, if we would like to, um, uh, if you meet someone who is in uniform, let's say, where do you look to see the insignia of their rank? Generally, we look on the shoulders. Sometimes there are emblems on the chest if they're wearing a cover. Sometimes there'll be the mark of their rank and authority on their hat. We are trained to look upward. But that was not so back in this day. And this is going to shed some light for you on two stories. Write these down for your notes, and I will trust you to go home and read these for yourself. The first is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it is the story of King Saul and the prophet Samuel. And the hem is a very prominent part of this story. And then another story also in 1 Samuel, but chapter 24. And this one is about David and Saul. So just so you have an idea of the importance of the hem, in this story of David and Saul, David and his ragtag army are on the run and they're hiding in a cave. And King Saul just happens to need to relieve himself. And this is big business. And I'll tell you why it's big business in a minute, and I'm not gonna elaborate on that anymore. But just trust me, he had big business to do. And so he tells his servants and his you know, army, I'm gonna go into the cave, I'll see y'all in a bit. And up he goes. Now, in order to do the big business, one of the things you have to do is take off your cape, your robe, and lay it aside. And that's where David and his entire army, who happened to be hiding in the same cave, find King Saul. And all of David's men say, look, God has delivered him into your hand. Go and kill him now. Now David approaches, he sneaks up on Saul, who is occupied, and he does not raise his hand against Saul, but what he does do is cut off the hem of Saul's robe. And then, so we know how important this was. It's David's conscience is smitten. And he repents of the sin of raising his hand against the Lord's anointed by removing his credentials as king. Because what would happen back in the day is that the hem of the garment is where your identity was located. In the pagan cultures, it might be heavily ornamented and decorated with um, stones and jewels and things. For the Hebrew man, the corners of his garment, his robe, called the talit, were intricately woven, uniquely knotted strings and fringes that hung down on the hem of this Jewish man's garment. No two were the same. They were like fingerprints, like a signature. So when you remove the hem of a garment, you were removing the identity of that person. We see it uh, in the prettier side of this picture at a Jewish wedding, even to this good day, where a Jewish groom will take his prayer shawl and place it over his bride, or they will stand under the chuppah at a Jewish ceremony. What he's doing is saying, I am pledging my covering over you, my protection over you. Conversely, a Jewish man could divorce his wife by cutting off the hem of her robe, saying, I strip from you your identity as my wife. 
So when we see David raising his hand against King Saul and cutting off the hem of his robe, what he's saying in effect is, I now have taken violent possession, if you will, of the kingdom. And he repents of it and asks God to forgive him. And of course, God does do. And David still is on the run, waiting for the day when the kingship that he was promised and anointed to uh, have will be his. But he's not going to raise his hand against Saul again. It's an important point in David's life. Now, there are many uh, stories in the New Testament about the hems of garments, but the sweetest one of me, of me, the sweetest one of all to me is from Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 43. If you want to turn there, hold your place in Ruth, but Luke eight forty-three. for many of you, this will be a familiar story. And for those of you who are brand new to Bible study, I just love the fact that you're on this grand adventure and everything is exciting and new. So embrace both camps, whether it's familiar or brand new to you. This is the story of a woman with an issue of blood who has been sick for 12 years with this issue of blood. And she has at this moment on this day fought her way through the crowd so that she could touch the hem of our Savior's cloak. There is a prophecy, write this down for your notes, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And it says about the Messiah that the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. Wings is the literal description of the hem of the Jewish garment. It's the kanaf. In fact, it's the same word Boaz used to Ruth when he said to her, may the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. It's the same Hebrew word. So, This woman has fought her way through the crowd and she has trusted in that prophecy from Malachi to be a fact. She took the scripture literally and seriously and that literal belief in scripture saved her life. And I love the way Dr. Luke records this story in chapter eight, verses 43 and 44. It says, and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. When Matthew records this, he tells us what she's thinking. For your notes, Matthew 9, 21. She is thinking to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be well. She's not seeking to speak to him. She's not seeking for him to pray for her or anything else. She just trusts that there is healing in his wings, in the fringe of his garment. And she reaches out and touches it. And immediately her faith has made her well. So uh, abrupt is this even for the Lord. He turns around, he says, who touched me? And I love this story. You'll have to read it yourself. Peter's looking at him like, are you kidding me? The crowd, you know, have you ever walked in a crowd? Every Everybody is touching you. What do you mean who touched me? No, no, no. Somebody touched me with purpose. And I love that. So he 
expresses such kindness to this woman, calls her daughter, she's healed, and she gets to go on and be a living testimony to the power of the truth of Scripture. Jesus knew that she sought the hem of his garment, and again, her faith made her well. When the woman saw that she had not, oh, excuse me, verses 47 and 48. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Y'all, seconds before she was bleeding to death and now she's fully restored. Strength has come back to her. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If you recall from a previous study, when I mentioned that Jesus stood and looked out over Israel and expressed his desire to gather them as a hen would gather her chicks under his wings of protection, there are also wings pictured in the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle and in the temple. And they are two cherubim who are sitting on either end of the mercy seat with their wings outstretched. And this again is another beautiful picture. When God in heaven looks down on the mercy seat, he doesn't see the broken law that's being held inside because the table, the commandments are inside the Ark of the Covenant with some other things too. When he looks down on that solid gold mercy seat, he sees the blood of his son poured out all over the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. And now he says, would you like me to spread my wings over you? So that when the father looks at you, again, you are wrapped in my robe of righteousness, hiding under the shadow of my wings. I love this picture. And this is what Ruth is doing. She is recognizing the full significance of what it means to ask Boaz to spread his skirt over her. What she's doing is proposing marriage to him. Again, he loved her dearly, but he cannot redeem her unless she asks. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you realize that it is not the love of God that saves you? And let this sink in for a minute. The love of God does not save you. The love of God provided the way of salvation. For by grace, you are saved through faith in that active love. Jesus loves the whole world. That doesn't make the whole world saved. Only those who will come under the shadow of his wings and say, yes, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my redeemer. Only those who will come, but as many of those as come, he gives the right to be called the children of God. Long before we loved him, he first loved us and prepared the way of salvation. If our salvation required that Jesus do some heroic act, Let's say that the plan of salvation wasn't a cross on Calvary, but instead God the Father said, I want you to circumnavigate the globe on foot. You must walk every mile, go walk up every mountain, every valley. You must swim every ocean. And when you get that work done, redemption will be paid for. 
What Jesus would do then, what he would have to do then, is to stop one foot away from you. You have to take the last step. And he stands with arms open wide, his wings outstretched, and he's inviting as many as will come to be wrapped up in that beautiful picture of protection, provision, unconditional love, forgiveness, all that that implies is waiting and available to anyone who will ask Jesus to be their savior. It is the most beautiful picture in scripture to me, Ruth at the feet of Boaz. I can't think of a better place to be under the shadow of his wings. And I would love to say, if there's anyone in here today who has never come to Jesus Christ like this and asked him to be your savior, to be your redeemer, your kinsman, your goel, that today be the day of salvation. And so before you leave here today, come up here and talk to me or Ronnie or Sue or Karen. The small group leaders will be busy with their groups, but I bet if you want to talk to them, they'd be happy to do it too. The sweetest thing we can do for you today is introduce you to our Savior. And I just pray that today will be the day of salvation for as many as will come. So do please feel free to seek us out. We would love to pray with you and talk to you more about this. Okay, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is light and life to us. Thank you so much for covering us with your wings. It is there with you that we have found our refuge. And we look forward to the, to the day. What a sweet, glorious day it'll be when the hem, the train of your robe, fills the temple with glory. And we will be able to rejoice as the bride adorned to meet her bridegroom. All of these things we pray in the precious, redeeming name of Jesus Christ. And the bride of Christ said, amen. Now, ladies, go and sin no more or come up here and talk to me and sin no more. (laughs) 